So at the end of chapter 3, Paul talks about the church. He tells the church how the church should view itself. It should view itself as the people of God who are connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, who are connected to God, and he says, all things are yours. He tells them, don't pick a particular teacher, don't align yourself with a particular teacher, all are yours, all are there to serve you. All of God's work in the world centers upon the church, the building of his church. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The church is at the center of God's dealings because it's the church of Christ. And Christ is at the center of his dealings in the world. And Christ is at the center because God is at the center. God is working out his purposes in and through us. You are Christ's and Christ is God. That's a wonderful, wonderful truth. But we belong to Jesus Christ. What significance that gives to your life and my life, that we belong to Jesus Christ, how the church then should view itself, all things are yours. And as we move into chapter 2, Paul tells them to view something else. He takes a view from the church, and he says, this is how you should view us as the apostles. Take your eyes off yourselves, look at us. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, so let a man or person, man or woman, it's a generic word for uh, humankind, man, includes men and women. So consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. You see, worldly thinking had come into the church. We said this a number of times. There was this cult of personality. There was this priority, this who is the greatest preacher? Is it Paul, Apollos? Is it Cephas? There was this, well, this uh, beauty contest that the church almost has set up to say who is the most beautiful of all these preachers? Who is the best of them all? A competition to assess who was the most worthy of them. In our culture of celebrity, how many celebrities are there? So many celebrities. What do you need to be a celebrity? The culture of personality and celebrity. Perhaps a bit more prevalent uh, in the States. That's not been disparaging to Christians in America at all. But I think also here in the UK, the, the, as it were, the prominence and, the, and the, the, the celebrity culture. What do you want to be when I grow up? When you grow up, a question was asked of a young girl. She said, I want to be a celebrity. It just shows you the impact that the culture is having um, around us. That wasn't a girl in the church, by the way, one of my girls. I just make that clear. <laughs> but that is what can happen, isn't it? Kids can have an aspiration in the world to be a celebrity, can come into the church. Now, Christian leaders can be treated like celebrities in the Christian world. We know number of, of as it were, Christian household names, and we respect men. We, uh, we've been blessed by their teaching. They have uh, been wonderfully raised up by God. But how are, to we, how are to we to view them? The Apostle Paul was alive today. How would he have us view him? As, as Austin was saying yesterday, probably the greatest Christian preacher and teacher there has ever been. How do we to review them and view them? Well, Paul tells us here. He describes us. He describes Christian teachers and Christian leaders. Verses 1 to 2. 
so described. So I've got two points, two main thrusts this morning, two things for you to observe. The first one is longer than the second, just so when we get to the end of the first one, you can think we're only halfway. It's not like that. Two-thirds and a third is the way I've divided it up, just the way the material has come to me as I've prepared. So firstly, he describes Christian leaders, verse 1 and 2. Okay, Paul, write down, how am I to think about you? What terms am I to think of? What illustrations, what analogies am I to have? Paul, the great apostle, Peter, the apostles, wonderful men of God. Well, there are lots of different titles in the scriptures that we could look at. But it's interesting, in in this letter to the church who prized the cult of personality, who prized gifts, as it were, and standing and status, that they imbibed that from the culture around them. What is the term he uses to describe his work for God? So verse 1, he says, you should consider us, this is how you should think about us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. As servants and as stewards. So what does the word servant mean here? Well, it means galley slave. So let's back up and say, what's a galley? A galley is a ship, a ship that was used in the Mediterranean that would be used for cargo, a military, warfare, piracy, a galley ship. If you read Asterix, the Romans had galleys. Or if you read other history, um, they also had galleys. I'm not saying Asterix is history there, but I think you get what I mean. So a galley was a type of ship. And those had rowers, okay? So you had rowers in the ship, and they had different tiers of rowers. And, and it was through the rowing, with using the oars, that the ship moved forward. That was the way it was propelled. It was rowers. And the word that Paul used here is the word for being an under-rower. Yeah, as a galley slave, but an under-rower. So of different tiers of rowers within the galley ship, he says, we're the lowest. We're the guys at the bottom of the boat. We're the guys who almost have to take the hardest strain. It's only through their efforts in their rowing that the ship moves forward. He says, think of us as these under-rowers. Do these men have status? No. Do these men have pride and prestige? No, they don't. They're at the lowest. What happens if that galley ship takes a hole? Which, who are the guys are going to get it first? It's the ones at the bottom. They're the most dangerous place. They're the most risky place within the boat, within the ship. They're at the bottom of the pile. That's a picture. So let a man so consider us as servants, as Christ, as galley slaves, as the lowest of the galley slaves. And the galley slaves existed for the captain and for everyone on board, the passengers. It was through their work that the ship moved forward, that the people on board would get to where they needed to go to, their passage, or the the army would be taken, or the navy would be taken into war. Without them, the boat wouldn't go anywhere. 
It would have no purpose. It would have no place. The galley slaves, the under rowers. Well, you can see the illustration here. Who is on deck? Who is the captain of the boat, of the ship, of the galley? It's Christ. He is the one. He is navigating. He is the one who is controlling the direction. He is the one who has the relationship, as it were, with all the rowers, and they're following his orders. They're following his direction. And they're working, and they are rowing towards a goal, and they are doing the work of the captain. And that's what Paul is saying here. We're stewards. We're servants of Christ. We're galley slaves of Christ. Christ is our captain. Christ is our leader. Christ is the one with whom we have a relationship. We're servants of Christ. Corinthians, don't put us on a pedestal. Don't think wonderful things. Don't think status and prestige. That's not what we're about. We're the under rowers in the galley. But we have a relationship to the captain. What is the other term he uses here? He uses the term stewards of the mysteries of God. So what is a steward? Well, the steward is an estate manager. Somebody who manages a household or an estate on behalf of the owner. So the owner puts a man in charge. He gives him detailed instructions about how the estate is to be run, about how, when, when to harvest the land, how to look after the property, how to manage, as it were, the, the, the members of the household, where to spend the money, where not to spend the money, what the priorities are for the estate. And the steward's job is just to carry out the will of the owner. He's put in charge with responsibility. But it's not his stuff. Belongs to the owner. He's got to be, as we'll say, faithful. He's got that remit to carry, to carry out that task on behalf of the owner. He doesn't think of his own ideas. He doesn't bring his own thoughts and say, actually, I'll sell off this part of the estate. I will buy this part of the estate. No, the owner's not told him to do that. He's got to follow the instructions. He's got to follow the will of the owner, Joseph, in Genesis. He was made the steward in Potiphar's house, wasn't he? The Lord was with him and prospered him. And it was not Potiphar's will that Joseph would touch his wife. Of course, before God, he didn't do that. He feared the Lord. So here we have a picture of the apostles. Well, who superseded the apostles? Well, it's the pastor teachers in the church. It's the elders of the church. The succession, the apostles handed over to church leaders. But what are we responsible for? Well, it says the mysteries of God, not a physical property or a physical estate, but they're mysteries of God. Well, what are the mysteries of God? Well, Paul's already used that term, mysteries of God, in chapter 2 and verse 7. He says this, but we seek the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages 
for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, had they known this mystery, had they known this plan, had they known what God was doing in the world, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Yes, so the mystery of God is the mystery of Christ, of God's plan, of God sending Jesus Christ as the Savior into the world. The mystery of the plan is also in connection with the calling of the Gentiles and expansion of God's kingdom, not just Israel, but also throughout the world and the growth of God's kingdom. He's saying this hidden wisdom was, as it were, veiled before in the Old Testament. There's light, there's there's light, but it's like the light from the moon at night and the stars on a clear night. But as you get into the New Testament, you see, as it were, the sun comes up, the blazing heat and light of the sun shines in the New Testament times. The mystery is revealed. Christ is set forward in his glory. And the letter to the Colossians just speaks so clearly at that. And also in here, in, in, in Corinthians as well. So he's saying we're stewards of this mystery. It was hidden. Now it's revealed. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about God's purposes in the future. What God will do. So the galley slaves, the servants who have a relationship to Christ, they've been put in, as it were, they've been given this stewardship of the gospel, of preaching the word of God under Jesus Christ. They're to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what we're to do. That's what, by God's grace, I will do this year. That's what others do, too, who preach here in the eldership and in the preaching team. Set forth Jesus Christ, as Austin encouraged and charged me to do yesterday in his message. God's plan for this dark world. That is the remit. As Paul said to the Ephesians, when he preached there, we read of it in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, I've not held back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The Christ and the gospel. That is the remit that we have. The pulpit isn't the place to project political views or personal opinions. Yeah, like the steward, I've got to make sure, and the others have got to make sure that we're sticking to the instructions that we have in Scripture. Because that's what the owner of the church, Jesus Christ, has given us. We've got to be faithful to that. The servants, that is how you were to regard the servant leaders of the church. There's an important distinction here as well, or a subtle distinction. To be servants of Christ means that we serve the church. But it doesn't mean that the church is our master. We automatically think servants are the masters. But the church isn't the master. Jonathan Edwards told his congregation, I'm happy to serve you. I'm happy to be your servant but you must know that you will not be, my, not be my master. Because Christ is the master. Yeah? Christ is the master. And that is such a liberating truth and a liberating relationship. Because for me, my personal ministry here, he is the one I'm to please. He is the one I'm to seek approval of. 
He's the one I'm to honor as I love you and serve you and, and do all I can to build you up in the faith. In Christ, it's Christ ultimately that I'm serving. Stewards, servants of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God. And then he goes on and says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. One be found faithful. So stewards have to be faithful. Faithful to what? Faithful to Christ and faithful to the mysteries of God, the scriptures, the gospel. I'm learning so much through preaching through 1 Corinthians. In light of yesterday, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful, faithful to Christ. That is the key relationship for my life and for your life, your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's absolutely key and absolutely central. From it should flow everything that you do. Everything that I do. Faithful to Christ, it means living a life of submission to him, a life of service to him, a life of devotion to him. Faithfulness to Scripture means holding to Scripture, that high view of Scripture. Scripture alone. The will of God revealed in Scripture. Not my will, not my opinions, but His will revealed to be proclaimed accurately and from a warm heart. So faithfulness is so key. That's why Paul was attracted to Timothy. Timothy, the young man, will come on to some more applications for us all as about church in a second. Timothy, a young man, physically frail, naturally timid. The Corinthians, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, when he comes to you, make sure you put him at ease. You say, well, there's nothing, as it were, that as it, looking through the eyes of the world, you say, well, he's an ideal candidate to be a church leader. What was it that attracted Paul to Timothy? It was that he was faithful. Faithful to Christ. He was faithful to scripture. That's the criteria. That's the assessment. We read from Colossians at the beginning of the service. Let me just read to you a couple of verses from chapter 1 there where we have other examples of faithful servants of Christ. Those who are faithful stewards in the mystery of God. In Colossians 1 verse 7, as you've also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, a faithful minister of Christ, faithful servant of Christ, Epaphras. There's another one in Colossians as well, in chapter 4 and verse 7, it says, Titicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, faithful servant, fellow servant in the Lord. He will tell you news about me. So it's faithfulness. It's a big thing. It's not about cleverness. It's not about attractiveness. I know that already. Yeah, it's not about intelligence. It's faithfulness. Faithful servant in the Lord, the criteria of faithfulness for assessing these things. And that translates into every sphere of ministry in the church. And everything that we do as a church 
faithfulness as a principle. Let's, let's explore that. Let's apply it to our lives as a church together. Let's look at this principle and see how it carries right through the scriptures. What does God require of you and your service for him in the church? He requires you to be faithful too in the calling he's given you, in the avenue of service that he's given you, in the opportunities for service that he's given you as well. Can be on the door, as a, as a welcomer on the door, faithful to be here, faithful to meet people, faithful in welcoming people with a warm heart as we come to worship God. It can be preparing well, the IT stuff and the sound is faithful to the task. Can be preparing Bible studies and for young peoples or on a Wednesday. Faithful, accurate, stewards of the mysteries of God, making sure we understand the text, bringing it home prayerfully. Your work as a parent. Faithful. Training your children and the training and instruction of the Lord. Faithfulness to Christ in the way that you live in your home, with him as the centre of your home, with him as centre of your heart. Faithful to Christ, servant of him. Faithful to scripture, teaching your children God's ways, bringing them up in the, the nurture of the Lord, getting bringing the Lord Jesus Christ to them, unveiling his glory and his love to them, speaking to them of what he's done, speaking to them of what he, he wants from them, his, their faith, their trust, their hearts. Faithful as a parent. Faithful in every area of life in the church. Faithful to each other in our relationships as the body of Christ, building one another up in the faith, encouraging each other, growing closer to Christ, going closer to one another, building friendships in the church, building relationships in the church for our spiritual good. Faithful to one another, not unfaithful, not forgetful, not withdrawing. Faithful to Christ, faithful to Scripture, word of encouragement to another believer. Faithful. I don't want to preach duty here. I want to preach devotion to Christ. To be truly faithful, we have to fire up the devotion in our hearts to Christ himself. If Jesus has our hearts, he has our lives. He has everything that we have. We yielded to him and to, to pleasing him and honoring him. Doing all that we can when the gospel grips us, when the gospel motivates us, we will be faithful to him. When we love him, when we recognize the magnitude of his love to sinners, his magnitude of his grace in our lives, what he's rescued us from, will we not be faithful to him? It's the least we can do. If you and I are on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ, that fire spreads in the fellowship. We light one another up. May God stir the fire of devotion amongst us more and more. There's a connection between our outward faithfulness and our inward faithfulness. That's the point I'm trying to make. Paul treasured the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, he said, 
I want to know him, the power of his resurrection. Christ be magnified in me. And he was faithful because of that. It flowed from him and through him. He was gripped by these things. We need to be faithful to Christ in our hearts. Then we'll be faithful to Christ in our lives. Take the example of a, of a marriage. The husband becomes unfaithful in his heart first before it becomes unfaithful outwardly. But if a husband is completely faithful to his wife, he loves and treasures, is devoted to his wife, he thinks about her, how he might please her, that is a husband who's not going to be faith, faith, unfaithful to his wife. It's the same with Christ here. Stoke up your affections for Jesus Christ. Stoke up your heart. Keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it are the springs of life. Last week was cold, wasn't it, in your house? I wonder if you cranked up the central heating. Keep that house warm. Well, there are times, by the grace of God, we need to crank up the heating of our hearts. To warm our hearts. How do we do that? Praying and meditating on the gospel. Getting our hearts right with Jesus Christ. Kicking self out of our hearts. God, by his Spirit, will dwell there on the throne. That we'll be humble. That we'll sing the wondrous story and fire our devotions. That we'll be faithful to him. Well, are you a Christian this morning or a believer this morning? If you don't have a relationship to Jesus Christ, if you're not a servant of Christ, whose servant are you? Who do you have a relationship with? Are you only faithful to yourself? Faithful to your own plans, your own desires, faithful to your own will. It's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to lead you. Into heaven is not going to give you peace with God. Christ is God's gift to this world. He's God's saviour. He's God's servant. He came to save you, to cleanse you. He came to this world to save sinners. Will you believe in him? Will you forget yourself? Will you turn from yourself? Will you say, I've served my own life. I've lived for myself Self has been at the center of my life, but I don't want that anymore. It's going to lead me into judgment. It's going to lead me into darkness. It's going to lead me to hell, ultimately. But Christ came into this world to make you his servant, that you might serve and love and cherish and glorify him and know what it is to have your life fully turned around, live for the purpose that God has made you. He's made you to know him. You believe and trust him. He cast yourself on him. His arms are open to you. Become his servants. Treasure him. Believe in him. He's faithful. If you call on him, he will forgive you. If you call on him, he will save you. If you call on him, he will make you new. He will give you a new start. He will cleanse you. Give you a new future. Glorious future. He is faithful. So how are we to view 
church leaders, how we view our own ministries. We're servants of Christ. We're stewards of the mysteries of God. Secondly, he deals with false judgments. False judgments. Sometimes we can take action, but we can take action not knowing all the facts or not understanding motives. And that's what the church were doing. They thought they could see into Paul's heart. They thought they could assess what he was doing and thinking or why he was doing it. And they were making wrong judgments about him, wrong judgment calls. Have any of you been to Beth Gellert in Wales? Yeah, Beth Gellert is in Snowdonia. According to legend, there's a stone monument in a field which marks the resting place of Gellert, the faithful hound of the medieval Welsh prince Llewellyn the Great. The story is written on the tombstone and it says this, in the 13th century Llewellyn, prince of North Wales, had a palace in Beth Gellert. One day he went hunting without Gellert, the faithful hound, who was unaccountably absent. On Llewellyn's return, the truant, stained and smeared with blood, joyfully sprang to meet his master. The prince, alarmed, hastened to find his son. He saw the infant cot empty and the bedclothes on the floor covered with blood. The frantic father plunged his sword into the hound's side, thinking it had killed his heir. Dog's dying yell was answered by a child's cry. Llewellyn searched and discovered his boy unharmed, but nearby lay the blood of a mighty wolf which Gellert had slain. The prince, filled with remorse, is said never to have smiled again. He buried Gellert here. This kind of thing can happen in a church. People can assume motives or make a judgment, not knowing all the facts. And have to live with terrible consequences for the rest of their lives. Some in the church were judging Paul, he says in verses 3 and 4, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know nothing against myself, yet I am not hereby justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Does Paul say he, he thinks he's above being judged, he's above reproach? You can't judge me, Corinthians. Don't you know who I am? Is he saying that? No, he's not saying that. Sin is to be dealt with at any place in the church. Church leadership sin should be confronted and dealt with. Remember, John speaks of diotrophies who love to have the preeminence among them. Yeah, judgment needed to be made. He needed to be dealt with. Sin is dealt with in chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians. It has to be dealt with and there has to be judgments that are made. Paul tells Timothy and Titus, you should be prepared to hold your life and your teaching up to scrutiny 
and to assessments. And church leaders need to accept that. Accept feedback. Not be defensive. But open and assess it in the light of scripture. But in Corinth, the, the, the assessment was different. The context is different. And Paul gives two reasons why he says that they should not judge him and what it means here. The first is this. He says, you're judging me. You're judging the motives of my heart. You're judging my ministry uh, that, uh, that I have sought to undertake in the name of the Lord as a servant of Christ, as a steward of the mystery of God. I know that I shall be faithful. And he says, looking at my life, looking at my ministry, he says, I don't think I could say 100% that I've done what I should have done necessarily. He says, sometimes I'm not even sure of my own motives. Let me read to you the Message Bible, a paraphrase, which is not something to be trusted in terms of accurate exegesis at all, but just to give us a sense of what it means here, it says this, it matters very little what you think of me, even less where I rank in popular opinion. I don't even rank myself. Comparisons in these matters are pointless. I'm not aware of anything that would disqualify me from being a good guide for you, but that doesn't mean much. The master makes the judgment. Paul isn't meaning here that he's sinless. Paul wrote Romans 7. He says, the good that I should do, I don't do. And that the things that I shouldn't do, I do. He knows he's a sinner. He knows he needs Christ. He rejoices. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst. He's not saying he's sinless here. But he's saying, why are you judging me in terms of my ministry? I'm doing everything that I can. And when I look at it myself, as it were, I, I don't judge myself. That doesn't make me clear. That doesn't make me clean in your eyes. But there is one who judges, and that is the Lord. My judgment, as it were, I, I'm reserving judgment to him. When he looks at his life and looks at his preaching, he said, I may have built on this foundation with wood, hay, and stubble. Maybe some of his work was like that and would be burned up at the end. He said, but I'm just seeking to be faithful, seeking to honor the Lord in my life, my motives and my heart. I know nothing against myself. I don't know of any big, as it were, stain or big defect, as it were, in terms of my ministry. I've sought to declare the whole counsel of God. But he says, the Lord is the one who judges me. Judgment is of the Lord. He knows. He understands. So we need to be careful when we judge others. Careful of assuming motives. And Paul gives us an illustration in verse 5, and kind of doing these two, these, these verses together, because I think it's perhaps more helpful. He says this, he says, there's a second reason here. Judgment should be reserved for the Lord when he returns, verse 5. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness 
and reveal the counsel of their hearts, then each one's praise will come from God. And he's saying, only God really understands what's going on here. Only God really sees into my heart. He knows what I've been teaching. He knows what I've been doing. He knows that I'm his servant. He knows I've sought to be a faithful steward in my ministry for him. You shouldn't be judging me on this. The Lord is my judge. He is the one who it really matters to do what he thinks. And as Christians, we need to make sure that we're not assuming motives in people sometimes. Sometimes a person's life has a certain pattern to it, and they've told us what their motive is for doing it, therefore we can make a deduction as to what their motive is. But sometimes motives are hidden. Sometimes there can be actions, and we don't understand why somebody's doing that. Or we can be like the prince in the story. We can take action against somebody when we don't have all the facts, or we don't really understand the full picture. We need to be careful. Interesting, Paul here doesn't use a negative. He doesn't get a truth and beat them down with it on this subject. He says, therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. He will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsel of the heart. What is hidden, the hidden motives of the heart, the prayers, the inside, the inward motivation might be hidden in a person's life, but it will not be hidden on that day. Your motives are my motives. But the work that we do for Christ will not be hidden on that day. He will reveal the counsels of the hearts. There will be gold and silver and precious stones. There will be wood, hay and stubble. I'm sure in terms of motivations from all of us. But he puts it in the, in the positive, doesn't he, at the end of verse 5. Then each one's praise will come from God. He's saying rewards are going to come. There will be rewards for Christians. Can be a tricky topic because salvation is by grace. Through faith we're saved because of Christ alone, through faith alone. Through the cross. But it's saying here each one's praise will come from God. It's hard enough to judge our own motives sometimes, never mind the motives of others. But God knows if our motives are right before him, if our hearts are right before him, it doesn't matter what other people say. It doesn't matter what their judgment might be of us. The judge is coming. It is his judgment that matters. He will bring out what is hidden. He will bring it to light. From the darkness, he will reveal the counsels of the heart and there will be rewards. There will be prizes for Christians, for believers. And we can prepare, as it were, the room. We can prepare the stage. We can put up the balloons. We can get it all ready, as it were, for the prize giving, for the reward. But it's only when the king comes that there will be any rewards. He is the one who knows. He is the one who sees. Rewards will be based not on giftedness, not on prominence, but on the basis 
of motivation and faithfulness to Christ and to the word of God. It's a scary thought, isn't it? It's a scary thought. When we think about rewards, we think about the last day. People say, well, there'll be a lot of surprises on that day. There may well be a lot of surprises on that day when the Lord Jesus returns, when the judge comes, who will bring these things to light. There will be people, there will be believers whom you've never heard of will be rewarded greatly. He will be blessed and recognized for their service. For him, there may not be an ET, there may not be an EN, there may not be household names, but they were faithful in the corner that God had placed them. They were faithful with a true, sincere heart of devotion to Jesus Christ. They did their task for him. They fulfilled their calling for him. And they did it out of love. They did it out of devotion. They did it because they loved their saviour. The one who redeemed them. They did it for him. They were loyal. They honoured Christ in their marriage, with their children, in their home, which is so important. And their ministers may have been unseen or may not be grand in the eyes of the world. But they were faithful to Christ and they were faithful to Scripture and they were kind and they were used by God and they touched lives for him. Let's judge with righteous judgments. Yes, there's a right way of correcting attitudes and sins in leadership and in the church, there's church discipline and so on. We need to be careful with judging motives. Look at our own motivation. Not make judgments without the facts. The Rolls-Royce, when I used to work there last year, there was a, a, a culture um, motto or, or, or phrase that was used. It was this, assume positive intent. Assume positive intent. You can't see. You look at an outward behavior. You look at what somebody's doing. That is what you can observe. You can't observe in the heart. Assume positive intent. Yes, we're to be wise. But it's to be a gracious, generous relationship. Let's be careful then. Let's remember that the Lord is coming. Let's ask him to purify our hearts, purify our motivations, seek to serve him. Servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. May God work within us by the Spirit more and more that we'll be faithful to him, glorify him. Treasure and honour him. Be faithful to his word. Serve one another. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And look to the day when he returns. That we'll be ready. Ready for him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this 
section of your word and we pray that you would help us to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, faithful to your word in the gospel. Help us, we pray, not to make false judgments or rash judgments. Help us, we ask that you would help us to be generous and kind and not suspicious um, of one another, and yet wise um, as well, looking for the day when the Lord will come and reveal the things that are in darkness and to bring them to light so that each one's praise will be from God. Bless us then, we pray. Write these words in our hearts. Help us to grapple with these things in faith and to have fellowship with one another. For we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, what should we sing? But, O Jesus Christ, grow thou in me, and all things else recede. My heart be daily nearer thee. From sin be daily freed. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts 
and establish you in every good word and work. Amen.